Week 10 of a 12-week series we've been in. Um, you, there's notes in the back if you want my sermon notes. also have some in Spanish back there if you want to follow along. Um, you don't have to. I personally hate having notes in front of me when I'm listening to a sermon. It just distracts me. I start looking ahead, and, and it's like looking at your watch. You know, you're just suddenly aware of time, and I don't like it. But some people love it, and so if you want to have the notes, you can. And so we're in the 10th week of a series called 12 Things Every Church Should Know. These are foundational values, um, not just of our church. It's more like these, are, these should be foundational values of every church, no matter what culture, no matter what time period you're in. Um, you could say we're, we're trying to work out in a very awkward way because it's hard to work out what we mean by the apostles' doctrine. What, what are the foundational teachings of the church? What are the values we should all carry? Okay, and that's what we're trying to get at. And I can already think of more, okay? And so this is not some definitive list. I'm already thinking, well, maybe next summer I could do like 20 foundational values at the church. Um, but this is what we came up with. All right, so I'm not going to review all of these because there's too many so far. But I will say a couple of things. Uh, one is the last time we were together in this series was a few weeks ago. We talked about worship and prayer. And that directly ties in to what I'm talking about this morning. Okay, The idea that we are made in the image of God and then God says multiply. Like we're, we exist, our purpose, all the way down to the level of your DNA is to reflect and to give glory back to God, to say, this is what God looks like. Look how awesome he is. All right? And it's not just in what, how you sing or, or how you worship together congregationally. It's in your very existence. The fact that you exist is an act of worship. Okay? It's an amazing thing. That is your purpose. All right? As we talked about that um, the last time, a couple of weeks ago. And this morning we're talking about the global mission of God. Now, that might not seem obvious right away how they connect, but I'll help you with that in a minute, okay? And so here's a summary of what we mean by this. Jesus commissioned his church to proclaim the good news about Jesus to all the nations of the world. Churches should be making the gospel of forgiveness of sins, freedom, healing, and restoration through Jesus known in their own communities, and should invest in the global expansion of the kingdom of God. So God's purpose for creation has remained unchanged since Genesis 1. It's been the same exact mission from the very, very beginning. And as we saw last time, that, I, that purpose ultimately is worship. Okay, It's not just you worshiping, though. It's also that we, you would be making more worshipers. So I always, when, when worship is really good, there's always this sort of angst, I think, that comes up. It's not an angst like depression or anxiety. It's just a, something's missing. This worship is too small. This room is too small. There's not enough people, not because we need to have more money in the coffers, but because God wants more worshipers. And you start, and that's what begins to drive you out, right? It's the output of the church is still worship. I want to see, don't you want to worship God? He's great, right? That's the heart of an evangelist, right? And it's also the heart of a worshiper, okay? So that's the connection. So I want to just, just at the get-go tell you where I want to land, which is 
I think just like there are lots of false idols, false gods that we can worship. We talked about that when we talked about worship, that you can have like success, even like political power or really well-mannered children or the perfect job or just the right house or material things. Those can all be idols that you worship. They're like ultimate things to you that you chase. Those false idols also give us false missions. There are false purposes, false missions, which are like causes that possess your affections in a way that dominates everything else. It's the thing that you live for. It's the thing that gets you up in the morning, the thing that you want to do the most, right? Those idols give you causes that replace the mission that God gave us. And so part of what I think is going to happen in your heart this morning is as we go through and look at what the Bible says God's mission is, you're going to find conflict in your own soul. But I really care about this thing. Can't we just squeeze this in somehow to God's mission, right? And you're going to find conflict because everybody's got a finite amount of time, right? A finite amount of resources, a finite amount of passion. And when your passions are possessed by something other than what I'm going to show you, you, get, you have problems. You have, that's how you waste your life. Because we're not here just to make the world a better place. The world has a mission for you, and that is just be a good person and make the world a better place. How, how low of a bar can that be? I can go outside right now and pick up a piece of trash on the side of the road and say, Done. I just made the world a better place. Does that mean I can die right now and everything's cool? No. I can still waste my life having made the world a better place. God's mission is bigger than that. Okay? That's one of those false missions I think we can get into. All right? And so that's what I want you to be aware of as we look at these scriptures. That if you find yourself feeling conflict or not even caring, let's be honest, having no passion at all, ask yourself the question, well, what am I passionate about? Because God never says, just follow your passions. Right? Tell that to a serial killer. Follow your passions. No, sometimes your passions are going the wrong way. Okay? And I think that's where the Holy Spirit might convict you this morning. All right. Let's start with Genesis 1. We're going to do a tour through the Bible. Not all of it. I'm going to skip parts. We'll start with Genesis 1. Because what I want you to see is God's mission has never changed. Verses 27 through 31. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, that's controversial, isn't it? And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, And over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So God makes the earth. He makes specific things for us to have dominion over, meaning we use them 
to feed ourselves and to sustain ourselves and to enable us to do what? To multiply, to do what? To make image bearers of God. To multiply worship on the planet. God says, I want you to fill this entire globe with worshipers. And the first way you do that is you make babies, right? So not really a side note, but sort of a side note. Parents, this is why you have babies. It's not to, you know, make sure someone will take care of you in your old age. It's not so, as I have often said to my children, uh, to mow my grass. It's ultimately to be worshipers. That's what success looks like as a, as a child, a successful adult is one who worships God, okay? It's not, if they dress funny, it's okay, as long as they're worshiping God. If they smell funny, it's okay, as long as they're worshipers, right? This is the goal. This is why you do it, is to make worshipers. All right. So right from the beginning, we can see that God is really into multiplication through procreation because each new human images him. This is his purpose. Multiply. And so we jump forward to Noah, all right? We're still in Genesis. It's not long after everything got started. Everything goes wrong, right? Adam and Eve bring sin into the world. What does that do? It puts a seed in Adam that is evil. And so now when Adam multiplies, he's not multiplying God worshipers. He's multiplying evil, right? Sin multiplies through the parents. It's really awful. It's the opposite of what God wanted to happen. And so by the time we get to Noah, all this multiple, each generation is more wicked than the one before to the point where everyone is doing evil continually. And if they're not doing evil, they're planning it, right? And it's just all gone horribly. And so God says, enough. I'm wiping them out. I'm going to erase the whiteboard and start over with Noah's family. Noah's the only righteous family, him and his family, on the planet. Genesis chapter 9. So God floods the earth. He starts over. The first thing Noah does is he worships God. Look at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? We just read it before. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Sound familiar? Take dominion over all of those things. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require, require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Let's stop there. So what does God do? All this time goes by, everything goes wrong, he floods, he wipes them out, he starts over with Noah and his family, and the very first thing he says is exactly what he said before. God has a one-track mind. You need to understand that about God. You may do a whole bunch of stuff. Going this way, going that way, and he's just going to keep repeating himself 
over and over and over and over again. Yeah, so now that you're done running around, acting crazy and avoiding me, here's that thing I told you to do. This is what God does with Noah and through Noah with us. He has a one-track mind, all right? Abraham, same thing, Genesis chapter 17. Very tempting to talk about Abraham the entire time, but I'm not. So in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram, who becomes Abraham, and tells him to pack up his house and leave. Where am I going? Not telling you, just go that way. Follow me. Abram is a pagan, he's not a God worshiper. He talks, speaks to Abraham and he says, Follow me, go that way, right? Very similar to what Jesus did with his disciples. Where are we going? Just follow me. Then in Genesis 13, God promises him that his offspring will be so many that to try to count them will be like trying to count the dust of the earth. That's a lot. You can't even count the dust in your hand, much less the dust of the earth. That's a lot of descendants. All right? So he gives him a promise. Then in chapter 14, God promises to give land to his descendants. He adds on to that promise. You're going to have lots and lots of descendants, so many you can't count them, and I'm going to give this beautiful land to them. It's going to be wonderful. And then Genesis 17, 1 through 9, he adds on to it. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. There's that multiply word again. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. So this is God saying, I'm no longer waiting for humans to do this. You look back through those verses and you'll see the, the, the one, the side of the covenant or the contract who's doing all of the stuff is God, right? All the I will is God. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And what's he saying he's going to do? I'm going to do the thing that I told Adam and Eve to do, and they didn't do. I'm going to do the thing that I told Noah to do, and he sort of halfway did. But no one's able to get it right. And so now, Abraham, I'm going to snatch you out of this pagan world, and I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it through you. This is good news. Because if God told you to be blameless, like he told Abraham, you think you could pull it off? I've already lost it. I've already, already. I am blameful. <laughs> right? 
God gives Abraham a new identity, notice that, and then declares he will fulfill his own mission, but multiplying through Abraham. He gives him a new identity, and he says, I will do my mission through you. I will accomplish this multiplication of worship through you. I will do it. Jesus comes into the New Testament, the New Covenant, and he is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. I hope you can see that just from that promise to Abraham. An everlasting covenant. Abraham died eventually, right? Abraham is not everlasting. But God's covenant is everlasting. How? Because Jesus comes along and he completes it. Jesus is how God met the requirements of both sides of his covenant with Abraham. Both the, the, the responsibility to bless and to provide and to multiply, which is really his thing to begin with, but also the blameless part, be blameless. Abraham was not blameless. He was kind of a messed up dude. We won't go into it, it's on a whole other sermon. But Jesus is how God did this. Jesus, God did his part and Jesus did our part of that covenant. So we have Adam and Eve God says, multiply righteousness, and they didn't do it. We have Noah. God says, multiply righteousness, multiply worship. He didn't do it. Abram, he gives him, he says, all right, fine. I'll give Abram a new identity, and then I'll do it through you. And then Jesus comes. What does he do? He gives us the rebirth, the new birth. Be born again. Gives us a new identity. And then Jesus says, it's finished. What does he say on the cross? It is finished. What's finished? God's promise to Abraham is finished. He's done it. It's completed. Not just his task to die, but what's finished is God's mission from the beginning and our failure. God finally says, fine, I'll do it. And then he does it through Jesus. Matthew 28. This is Jesus' last words. If you've been a Christian for long at all, I'm sure you've heard this before. You have heard this before because I've already read it to you several times in different forms, right? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, this is after Jesus' resurrection. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By the way, that's all of the authority. Like whatever authority is available... In the universe, Jesus now has it, okay? He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this new covenant of grace isn't about natural multiplication. So those of you who don't have natural children, you're included, Okay? It's about supernatural spiritual multiplication. That's what a disciple is. So Jesus takes God's mission from the beginning to multiply on the, in the earth, and he now expands it to be a spiritual thing, making disciples, multiplication, no longer through procreation but through discipleship. 
And who are these new spiritual children? All nations. I think it's really important to understand that when he says nations, he doesn't mean geopolitical locations on a map. He's talking about people groups. This brings up all sorts of interesting problems, doesn't it? Because we are steeped in this idea of geopolitical nations with borders and governments and economies, and we rank them all, right? Some are better than others. Some have different forms of government than others. Some have better people in them than others, maybe. We rank them, and we, we separate them on maps. And, and, but God doesn't care about your borders. God doesn't care what you think is your spot and what other people's area is. What he cares about are people groups, people, right? These are ethnicities. These are really primarily separated by languages, okay? This is what we're called to go to, wherever they are, wherever they are, however they are. It's the people that matter, not the geopolitical nations on the map, okay? These are these spiritual children God intends to raise up as his image bearers. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. This is the same great commission, just a little bit more details from Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Ha <laughs> ha! They thought Israel equals the kingdom of God, which wasn't untrue. It just was too small. Okay? Just like, let's be honest, many American Christians think America equals the kingdom of God. As America goes, so goes the kingdom of God. If America goes down the toilet, then the kingdom must be going down the toilet. And we have this kind of religious fervor about our country that is a little weird. That somehow if we get the right guy in office, well, then Jesus will really reign over the United States. He's already reigning. Okay? And how you vote or don't vote isn't going to change that. So they had made this, this mistake that we often make, and I think most people in, in affluent countries make the same mistake. This is not an American problem. If you live in a country that you really like, you start to think that this is the kingdom of God, and it's not. So look what he says after this. He says, they ask him this kind of understandably ignorant question. And he responds to them, verse 7, he says, he said to them, it is not for you to know Times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Ooh, we don't like Samaria. We got to go there. We've hated them for generations. We got to go there. He says, Yes, and to the end of the earth, which is where we're standing. We're basically the ends of the earth, okay? I don't know if you knew this, but this whole thing didn't start in America, right? The, the pilgrims were not Jesus' disciples, who, and this was their first missionary journey, okay? This didn't start here. It started on the other end of the planet, right? 
So here we get some more information regarding this new old commission. The Holy Spirit will come and empower them to do it, lest we think we're back in Abraham or Adam and Eve's position where God just says, be holy, and I'll do the rest. And we find out we can't be. He says, wait, and the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to enable you to do this thing that I have accomplished through Jesus. And he says there will be a pattern of local to global, global being the ultimate destination, the ends of the earth, okay? That's the whole world. So he says, start right here in your hometown, work your way out regionally until you get to the other end of the planet. Never stop. Look at Acts chapter 2. And the Pentecostals rejoiced. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They did what they were told by Jesus. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I think this is amazing. Because the first thing, the first sign of the Holy Spirit coming was that he all spoke different languages. This was God's mission from Genesis 1. Make, go, multiply to every nation, right? That's what Jesus just told them to do. Go to every people group. And so what does God, the Holy Spirit, enable them to do? He enables them, empowers them to do it. They were not speaking in tongues just to have a fun, charismatic worship service. God was demonstrating through the Holy Spirit that he has, this, he has a one-track mind. That he is still stuck on this one thing, right? Let's keep reading. Now, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude, that sound of the rushing wind, and probably the speaking in different languages, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. And then Peter gives this amazing sermon. So what's God's first thing? After the Holy Spirit comes, it says, go preach, tell them the gospel make right there the first sign of the Holy Spirit's coming was that all these different nations he lists here, and I love that he lists them by name, were reached in a moment. They didn't have to go anywhere. They didn't have to go and travel. No one had gone on a missionary journey. Paul had not yet gone to the Gentiles. Peter had not yet gone to the Gentiles. It was right there in their hometown, just like Jesus said. And they just reached like 3,000, I think it's two or 3,000 of the nations right there. It's amazing. God has a one-track mind. 
Last week when Israel, I mentioned Israel, he's, got, he's back there translating, I think, so now he's got to translate his own name. Um, Israel did communion last week, and he said, God has no country and no borders. And he talked about being, leaving your comfort zone and being uncomfortable for Jesus. And then he stops, and he says, basically, speaking of being uncomfortable, I'm just going to do say everything I just said in Spanish. And I don't know if you knew it, but he was prophesying to you. He was prophesying to you in his action. That's what he was doing. This is the missionary heart of God on display right here in this room. God is not just concerned with your people group. He is one-track minded about one singular thing. I want worshipers from every single people group on the planet, and I will not stop talking about it and sending you out to do it and irritating you with your comfort until you actually go accomplish the thing that I started out saying to do with Adam and Eve. All of heaven is waiting for us to do this. Jesus is standing there going, I paid for it. It's finished. Just go do the thing. I even gave you different languages. You didn't even have to go learn Spanish. I just dropped it in there. I would love that gift. I'm praying for it. After Pentecost, the gospel stayed local. You can read through Acts. It, was, it took them a while. It really took persecution. They hung out there for a while on Jerusalem and these kind of in the region, right? Paul went, but this, the gospel didn't go out in force until persecution came. God help us. Even these awesome, highly charged, highly powered, Holy Spirit-filled disciples, things had to go really sideways before they actually really left what was familiar. God forced Peter to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He was unhappy about it. God does not require you to be happy about being a missionary. Just obey him. He had this dream where God's, Peter was very dyed in the wool, Jew, like we don't mix it up with Gentiles, we don't eat with them, we don't socialize with them, we don't do that. That's not what we're supposed to do, it's not the right thing to do. And God tells them in a vision, go to them and eat their food, which was really against the rules. I gotta go eat barbecue. <laughs> Poor guy. I love barbecue. Can't I have a hard time empathizing with him. But he goes. And he was, he was never, it seems, like he was never really happy about it because it worked. It turns out the gospel does great in, with other people groups. It doesn't require you to be of the nationality of the origin of the gospel. It just does great everywhere in the world. And Peter found that out, and he was really not ever super happy about it. You read later in Acts, Paul and he get into an argument, and Paul rebukes him because he's refusing to eat and hang out with the Gentiles that have come into the church. Turns out Peter's a bit of a racist. And Paul rebukes him for it. But he still obeyed God. Paul took the gospel much further, and it was persecution that really forced the early church out to the ends of the earth. Um, where they started became very difficult to stay in, so they were forced out. There are currently, I just looked it up this week, 7,143 people groups that are considered unreached. That's 41.8% of the total people groups. 
So we have 41.8% to go in what God told Adam and Eve to do at the beginning. God has a one-track mind. Every single Christian is called to be radically dedicated to both sending and going. Sending and going. A great example of that is our recent trip to Mozambique, not to beat a dead horse. Some went, some sent. Both are equally valuable to God, okay? I mean, I really am proud of the people that went, but I'm equally proud of those of you who sent them. That's an amazing thing. I have no idea what it costs some of you to do that, but I'm really proud of you. So what about this common objection to global mission, which is that we should be doing more local things first? I agree we should be doing local mission too. This God, Jesus never said, and in fact, he said the opposite, right? He said, mission to your local, mission regional, mission global, all of it. He didn't say, start global, then go local, or do one or the other. He said, do all of it, okay? So there is no biblical conflict between local mission and global mission. There should never be any conflict between those two. Now, I would say our church is pretty weak in the local thing. Let's be honest. Some of this is confession. I've been burdened for years that we would become a missionary church, both locally and globally. And just in the last few years, I've seen global mission become a real thing that I think we as a church are invested in. I was really excited about it. I'm really encouraged by it. I mean, just this last trip, just the, not just that people went. We've done that before, but I've never seen the kind of church-wide generosity, a surge of excitement about that before this moment. And that's an amazing thing that God's done. I want to see the same thing happen locally. I'm starting to see some of that happen. Um, there are pockets of local mission already in Living Hope Church. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, the Nagel small group um, has been doing, uh, going down to the rest home, nursing home. I don't know which one, which one is it? The Bradford nursing home. Um, is it every week? No, once a month. They used to do it every week and it was too much. Once a month down there and just ministering to those people, playing games with them. Alan, I'm sure, sings songs, um, brings his guitar. And that's one example, all right? But I have not seen the kind of church-wide surge of vision for this that I want to see. The other thing going on right now that I wanted to tell you about that I'm excited about is, I mean, you're seeing an example of it. This is the first week we've done live translation um, into Spanish. We're planning on me and Israel and Christina and Sergio and Daniela and several others. I don't know who they've recruited at this point. My job is to start conversations and then walk away. That's kind of what I do. Um, it's just planning some outreaches here into the communities around, just around our building and saying, how can we serve you? Um, God's brought lots of Latinos into our church that speak Spanish. And it's like, okay, God's opening a door there that I have not seen open before. And how can we go through it in a, in a way that is not just the, 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 the white pastor coming in and going, how can I save you? 
but actually meeting real needs and bringing the gospel there. And so God's given us people that have great ideas for that, and we're executing some of those. Um, we're also exploring um, uh, opportunity in Guadalajara. That's a global thing that I think might not be just a global thing, but might come back to us. Um, we're, doing, we're planning an exploratory trip there in November. Um, me, Israel, and the Jenna and Scott Golston are going to go. There might be some opportunity to do some medical stuff down there in a church. There's a confluence church in Guadalajara, actually two. And so we're going to go visit and just see if God opens a door or not. And if he does, we'll go through it. If he does, we'll go, wow, this is awesome. But also to open a door to them, to our church. And say, look, we have a heart for our community. There's a lot of people that went through Guadalajara and came here. And maybe God would open up a door for you guys to help us do ministry in Kernersville. I think that would be a cool thing. Um, who knows? I'm just dreaming here. All right? But these things start with dreams. So we're planning some local outreaches that I'm excited about. Maybe doing, if you're interested in teaching English as a second language, we might try to do a class like that. We've got an immigration logger who we're hoping will come and do a class, um, a free class for people in the community that want to find out how to do that. Lots of things that I think would be really awesome. Um, why? Because we want to make the world a better place? It's more than that. God gave Adam and Eve a mission to make disciples of every single nation, to multiply righteousness in these image bearers all over the world. And that he won't stop talking about it. And he's called us to be a part of that. So what about these false missions? I thought of one obvious one that comes into conflict, even when we talk about Guadalajara, I think it's fascinating the weird situation that puts us in. Because Guadalajara is one of the main thoroughfares for migration of people going from South and Central America up through there. And where are they going? Here, to our border. Does that make you feel a little funny? It shouldn't. There's a conflict there between your political passion and your passion for the mission of God. And we have to decide which mission, which passion we're going to serve. I think the same thing is true for your money and your career and your children and your house and your property and your retirement plan. Like, some of you had to decide when we sent people to Mozambique, what am I going to do with this money? Which passion is going to rule, right, over my pocketbook? And you decided, I don't know who, I don't know how much, but there were a lot of people that made some decisions about, I'm going to do something with my money for the kingdom and not just for this. We have to make these decisions all the time. I think our heart should skip a beat in a good way when people of different nationalities walk through our door. We should go, oh, oh, yes, yes. Why? Because it's the missionary heart of God from the beginning. But you know what else? Let's make it harder. Let's expand that beyond the church walls for a minute. 
When you're out at Walmart, your heart should skip a beat when you see someone who's not like you. Does it? Or do you immediately think in terms of your political affiliation and your political opinions and you, your passions get confused because you don't know which allegiance you have that is stronger, your allegiance to your political opinions or your allegiance to the mission of God? Where does your heart? This is what I mean by false missions. Our world is constantly offering us causes to be passionate about other than the one God has for us. You should be really into like raising children a certain kind of way with a certain method. Or you should be really into my political party. Or you should be really into this charity or that charity or this cause or that cause. Saving the whales, saving this bird. Saving that bird. Eating organic, not eating organic. GMO, no GMO. I love GMOs. It is a, you're constantly being marketed to. Why do you think Facebook and Google and all these guys are collecting your data? Because they want to get you passionate about the thing they want you passionate about. And here's God who just won't shut up about this mission. He's just on and on and on and on and on and on. He just keeps talking about it and talking about it. He's saying everybody has to be a part of it. I am really concerned by the way we are marketed to by our world. We live in an age of outrage. You should be upset about this. You should be upset about this. This is a really big deal. This is really scary. And we get jerked around left and right, left and right. And meanwhile, this is the thing God wants us passionate about. If you can't fit in, if you can't connect your passions to this mission, you are wasting your life. It's that simple. If you can't connect the thing that you are really into, that doesn't mean doing, that's not just, a, I'm not being simplistic. You should, but you should be able to connect your job and the making of money to this work. It's one of the things that's so powerful about what's happening in Mozambique is it's business, all this biz, cool business stuff, these little micro businesses going on that are directly connected to expanding the kingdom of God. And they see no conflict between the two. It's very un-American. But you ought to be able to connect what you do with your time, week in and week out, to this mission. Leading people to Christ in your work, using the money that you make in your work to feed and send and to enable the kingdom of God to expand into different places, to different people groups. You should be using all of that, using your time, your hobbies, the stuff you do for fun. Everything should be connected. If you are spending your life doing anything other than that, including raising children, this is the mission, this is your purpose. And we really need to throw out the counterfeits. It's very hard. I'm challenged by it too. That's probably why I'm being so noisy about it. All right. Let's take this in for a landing. Revelation 7.
This is how it's all going to end. So while I'm hitting you hard this morning, trying, at least trying to, <laughs> to question everything you're doing and say, what does this have to do with the kingdom, right? Don't do anything stupid, like just quit your job because you hate it and you go, well, it's not the kingdom. But question all of it, right? Constantly question all of it. Am I wasting my life or not? But here's the guarantee, right? That this is, this is going to happen. God is going to accomplish what he said he would. Revelation 7, 9 to 12. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Every tribe, every people, every language standing before the throne. It is finished. That's what that means. So I say we get a head start on heaven. Right? Like that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful picture. But it requires us, I think, to reject false missions, false purposes, false passions to get behind his. So why don't we stand up and I want to pray for us. I think we really need the Holy Spirit, right, to, you know, if you think about what happened to those 12 guys in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came, is whatever it was that they were concerned about up until that moment no longer mattered, right? Like, what, whatever it was, what's happening with my wife and kids back home, or what's happening to my fishing business, or you know, what's, what's, Rome is, Rome is awful, they're oppressive, they're, you know, we need a political uprising, all of that stuff. Even their question to Jesus, when is the kingdom coming to Israel? All of that, as soon as the Holy Spirit dropped, became at least secondary, if not completely out of the picture. And they were consumed with this one singular mission. Every people needs to hear the gospel. And so I want to pray, not just that you would be like, oh, I feel bad about being so distracted. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would come. And instead of you fighting against things, just receive him. And ask him to fill you with his desires, his passions, amen, so that everything else would fade. So that's what I want to pray for. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come as Paul instructed us to be continually filled with the Spirit. And we ask you to fill us once again. Would you consume our passions? God, that our hearts would leap over the things that yours leap over. God, if 
God, if there's anything in us that is double-minded, divided, God, if our passions or zeal is divided, would you end that for us right now by your Spirit? God, we long to experience what those first 12 experienced of being so set on fire by the Holy Spirit that we are empowered to go to every people group and to effectively bring the good news of Jesus Christ that the kingdom is here the kingdom has come and it hasn't just come to Israel it's come to the world so God, I pray that you would, all make, you would make all of us a part of that mission, whether it be sending or going, whether it be sending locally or sending globally, whether it be going locally or going globally. God, I pray that you would release us in power to do that. God, specifically for Living Hope, we ask that you would strengthen our zeal for local mission. God, to reach our immediate neighbors with the gospel. God, that the good news would go. That it would go from this place. Not just overseas, but right here in our city. God, make us all missionaries. God, we confess that we are as willing as we know to be. We are willing to lay down anything that's in the way of that. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to search us, search our lives, search our time, search our bank accounts, search our hearts, that we would connect everything we do to your kingdom, whether it's rest or play or work or child rearing, marriage, whether we get married or not. God, I pray that all of it would be for your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen.